you can tell by the title, Final Generation Number Three, that I'm kind of continuing the thoughts that we've started a couple of weeks back, um, looking at this idea that there are going to be a group of people that live to see Jesus come. We agree with that? That's one of the reasons that this church exists, because we believe Jesus is coming. That's the Adventist part in the name of the congregation. But we also believe there are going to be a group of people that will live to see him. We studied this a couple of weeks ago in our um, early morning Bible study, going through the book of Revelation. We looked at the 144,000. So Jesus is coming. There is going to be a group of people. And that group of people have a unique role in this world's history, simply by being part of a group of people that will live to see Jesus come, that means they're going to be unique, right? Um, that part of that group uh, will not, well, all those that live to see Jesus come will not taste death. According to scriptures, there's only been two people that have had that experience. So again, this is definitely a unique group of people. And what Jesus is doing now for us in heaven is very important. And a couple of weeks ago, I began looking at this, uh, or I referred at least to this book. It's called God's Character in the Last Generation. You can get it at the ABC if you'd like. And the concerns of the writers um, is to correct wrong thinking about this final generation. And a few weeks ago, we looked at some of their concerns. Is there any way that the final generation contributes to God's vindication? We looked at Revelation chapter 12. And we saw that, in fact, that last group of people, although Jesus clearly has vindicated God in his death, there is something for you and I to participate in. Our lives do tell for the truthfulness of the word of God. And that's an important aspect. We also looked um, a couple of weeks ago at this idea of absolute perfection or absolute sinlessness. And we realized there's no such thing here as absolute perfection. The only absolutely perfect being in the universe is who? Would be God. He's the only absolute perfect being. At the same time, God wants you and I to continue to mature in our characters where we come to the point where we would rather die than commit sin. That's what God's longing for in our growth, in our character, our character perfection, always based on what Jesus Christ has done. The writers have some other concerns, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Um, It's going to be our last in this short series. And one of the concerns of the writers is this. They say several times throughout the book that there's a group of people that believe that Jesus is, quote, exactly like us, and that if you overcome, somehow that is meritorious. What do I mean by that word meritorious? What does meritorious mean? Well, it's got merit, okay, yeah. Um, What does that mean, meritorious? Okay, it makes you worthy. So the concern of the writers is that um, they feel that some people are saying, if you overcome, somehow that makes you worthy. What you do makes yourself worthy. Those, Both those ideas that Jesus, quote, is exactly like us, or... If we overcome, that is meritorious. Both of those ideas 
we would be uncomfortable with. Those ideas actually would be her- heretical in a certain aspect to think that Jesus is exactly like us because we sin and he didn't, um, or to think that our overcoming is meritorious. So what I want to explore this morning is this idea about Jesus and the incarnation. But before I do, I need to say something else. And that is this. This argument that there are certain people that are saying that Jesus must be exactly like us or that our overcoming is meritorious is what we would call a straw man in an argument. What is a straw man? Logical fallacies. What's a straw man argument? No, I'm not talking about the Wizard of Oz and the straw man. What? What? Okay, you set up a position and then you attack it and you say, for example, so just kind of a random illustration here since Richard spoke up. If, if I were to say um, some unusual thing about Richard, what could I say about you? Help me, Sue. Um, <laughs> Yeah. You know, if I were to say, you know, that Richard was a racist, for example, and I were to, to claim that he was a racist and then defended or say how bad racism was, well, that would be a straw man. Richard's not a racist, but I would be pinning something on him that he doesn't believe, and then I would be demolishing it. That's kind of a straw man argument. And it's a bit of a concern to me in this book that some of the authors, they say there are people that are arguing that when you overcome, that's meritorious. But I really don't know anybody that says that. There may be people out there that do, but the, the concerns of the writers of that book, they haven't demonstrated that to me, so I'm a little concerned about straw man fallacies, straw man arguments. If we're going to critique something, it would be very important for us to have an honest critique of it. Would you agree with that? That if I'm going to disagree with somebody or if they're going to disagree with me, we should at least honestly or clearly portray that person's position. So this morning, what I want to look at is three questions with you. And and I realize this is a sensitive topic. A lot of people might disagree with me on this topic. But three questions for us this morning. What kind of man, and when I say man, I mean human being here, Man, obviously because Jesus became a man, but what kind of man did God become? What, what realm did Jesus walk into, into the incarnation? Question number one. Question number two is, what was God's purpose for the incarnation? Why did God become man? And then the last question for us is, well, how long does God remain man? And for me, these are very important topics because the humanity of Jesus Christ is very sensitive, but it's a very important topic for us to understand. It's like the golden chain that links us to God. And we need to approach this topic gently. We need to approach it reverently. need to study it carefully in scriptures. Um, But Jesus gave real proof of his humanity in his life. Uh, So again, when we approach this concept of Christ in the incarnation, Christ's divinity being clothed with humanity, we need to be a little bit like Moses when he approached the burning bush. What did God say when Moses came up to the burning bush? Take off your shoes. Why? Because you're standing on holy ground. 
And so when we begin to ask these kind of questions, particularly the first one, what kind of man did God become? What kind of humanity did God assume in the incarnation? A little bit like Moses, like this is sacred ground, but it's a very fruitful study for us. And so let's kind of go and you have your Bibles with you, I'm assuming. So let's ask this question. What kind of man did God become? And first of all, let's be very clear that Jesus was not exactly like us because every one of us have committed sin. Would you agree with that statement? Yes or no? Yes. And of course, Jesus did not. So a few verses for you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. I'm going to put a number of verses on the screen. We won't read all of them. I'll simply refer to some of them. But 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it tells us, verse 21, speaking about God, he made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So here's an exchange. Christ knew no sin. Is that clear? We need to be 100% clear on that, that in Christ's life, he never committed sin. If he did, he would not be able to be our savior. That's tremendously clear. That's, that's a bedrock foundation teaching that Christ was unique in the sense that he never committed sin. You know, a number of years ago, I met a man. Um, he's a pastor now on the West Coast. Uh, he's kind of changed his philosophy a little bit, but I met him a long time ago, and I remember when we met, we were talking about different things, and he said to me, he says, you know, I have not sinned for about three months. And um, wow, that was kind of like my response. I was like, wow, really? You just blew it now. Um, so, but his thinking was that he'd gotten to this point where he was completely sinless. And that's really dangerous thinking, it's, it's a very different thing for me to say that the last generation is going to come to a point where they would rather die than sin. And I believe that, that the final generation, they are going to be willing to lay down their lives. They love not their life unto death, Revelation 12, verse 11. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. They're going to come to that point. But it's, that's very different from saying, I cannot sin. Because if I come to the conclusion where I think, I cannot sin... That means all my actions are what? They're all right. If I cannot sin, that no matter what I do is, it's right. Even if what I'm doing is wrong or sinful. And so we need to be very careful here. Um, Jesus truly knew no sin. Um, Other passage for us, Luke chapter 1 and verse 35 uh, this is the birth narrative where the angel comes to Mary and says, that holy thing or the holy offspring, that holy child who is going to be born in you, he will be called the Son of God. So Christ in his incarnation, in his birth, he is called that holy thing, holy child, holy offspring. And then in Hebrews chapter 7, let's look here. Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 26. Hebrews 7 in verse 26, describing Christ's work as our high priest, 
the Apostle Paul, I believe is the author of the book of Hebrews, says, for it was fitting for us to have such a high priest. And then notice the words that the high priest is described in. What are those words? He's holy, right? What else? Harmless, undefiled, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens, who does not need, like the earthly high priest, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Jesus was holy, he's harmless, he's innocent, he's undefiled, separate from sinners in the aspect that he never committed sin. So very important for us as we think through this question, what kind of humanity did Christ assume? Clearly, Christ was sinless in his actions. A quotation for you. This is from a magazine called The Youth Instructor, September 8th, 1898. It says, No one looking upon the childlike countenance, shining with animation, could say that Christ was just like other children. You couldn't say that about the child Christ. Why? She continues, He was God in human flesh. When urged by his companions to do wrong, divinity flashed through humanity and he refused decidedly. So when he was a child and he's tempted, how does he respond? He responds, no, to every temptation. Every temptation. And so if somebody were to argue, I don't know anybody that does, but if somebody were to argue, well, Jesus was exactly like us, that would be an incorrect statement. He's not exactly like us. He never sinned. He's not a sinner. He continually resisted and rejected temptation. Important part of the foundation. However, when we look carefully at scriptures, we find that although Jesus' performance was very different than ours, he never sinned, the equipment that he had was in fact like ours. So let's flesh that out with a few texts. So Romans chapter 1 in verse 3. Romans chapter 1 in verse 3. We'll start in verse 1. Romans chapter 1 starting in verse 1 through verse 3. Paul a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he, that is God, promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, the gospel concerning his son, who was born, how? Of the seed of David, according to what? According to the flesh, according to humanity. Declared to be the son of God with power, by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Notice what Paul does in those two passages. He contrasts, or perhaps compares, born according to the flesh with according to the spirit of holiness. In Christ's life, he's continually motivated by the Holy Spirit, continually demonstrating what God is like. But he comes according to the flesh. He comes into humanity as humanity is in the world that existed when he was incarnate. Let me flesh that out 
a little bit. Let me fill that out. Sorry. Let's, let's continue here. Um, Romans 8, verse 3. Let's pass that. Um, I'll quote it for you. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 3. But turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, which is our scripture reading. In Romans 8, 3, Paul says that Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He actually uses that expression. He says likeness because he realizes that Jesus never sinned, but he came into humanity as you and I find it. He came into the world with the equipment that you and I have. Let's look at our scripture reading, Hebrews chapter 2. And um, if you have a highlighter, as our children's story brought out, there's a couple of words you might want to highlight in this passage. And let's jump back to verse 14. Hebrews 2, we're going to start back in verse 14. And Paul's been talking about, in chapter 1, he talks about Christ as God, equal with God. In chapter 2, he starts talking about Christ in the incarnation. Verse 14, therefore, since the children, what children? Oh, the children of Abraham, humanity. Therefore, since the children share what? What do we all share? We're all human. We're all part of the great human race. Again, that is why Christianity is an inclusive religion and not an exclusive one. Because everybody, every tribe, tongue, nation, language, is invited into the household of God. There is no, let me say it this way, there should be no exclusivity in Christianity. Christianity should be a wide-open, come-on-in faith. And that's what he's saying. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, we're all one, notice what else he says here. He himself, seems a little redundant, he himself likewise also partook of what? The same. He himself also likewise partook of the same. Why so many redundant words? Because Paul's trying to drive home a point. And the point is that just as the seed of Adam, seed of Abraham, a share in flesh and blood, Jesus Christ came into the world as humanity was when during the incarnation, as we find it today. He himself likewise partook of the same. Why? That through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And verse 15, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. It's another part here, but many people are under bondage to fear of death. You know, what does this life have for me? And it brings us into the slavery. And what Paul's telling us is that Christ has broken that power because he entered into the experience that you and I face. He knows the difficulties. He knows the trials. He knows the temptations. He knows the hardships. He knows everything that you and I encounter because he walked into our experience. That's what Paul's saying. Verse 16. Assuredly, he does not give to help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham, descendants of Abraham. Verse 17. Paul's conclusion, therefore, this is the conclusion. Notice what Paul says there, verse 17. What does it say? He what? Or, let's see, if you have the King James, it's got that unique 
ancient English word there. What is it? Behooved. It behooved him. What does that mean? It behooved him. I like that word. We don't use it very often. What does it mean? It served his purpose. What? It was appropriate. Someone else have a different translation? It's, it's to our benefit. Uh, let me read it from the New American Standards. The New American Standard says, therefore, he had to be made. The Greek word that's used there, behooved, is used in other places in the New Testament to talk about a sense of obligation, um, a debt. For example, John 13, where Jesus tells the disciples, I have washed your feet, therefore you ought to wash one another's feet. It's the same word there. It's a sense of obligation. So what's Paul saying? That he was under obligation to be what? Made like his brethren. Now you might think, you know, it's a little over the edge for the Apostle Paul to say that God is under obligation to do anything, except that obviously Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he could write this. But what he's saying is, it behooved him. He was obligated. He had to be made like his brethren. In how much? All things. Why? So that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. But what Paul's telling us there, if we look back again, verse 14, he himself also likewise partook of the same, the same humanity that you and I find ourselves in. In verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation, forgiveness for the sins of the people. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are being tempted. Have you ever been tempted? Do you know somebody that's tempted? He can come to the aid because he entered into our experience. He had to be made like us so that he understands our experience, and then he comes to the aid of those who are being tempted, which, incidentally, who is tempted? Everybody. So again, there's that inclusive aspect of the message of the gospel. He had to be made like this. Um, Now, so this teaching that Christ came into humanity like you and I have, that Christ took fallen human nature on it, this was very clear teaching in the Seventh-day Adventist Church for well over 100 years. At this point in time in Adventist history, there's discussions that go on back and forth about it. If you'd like more information on the historical background, let me know. I can give you some literature. But again, this was just very clear, plain Adventist teaching for our first 100 years of history. By the way, many theologians, non-Adventist theologians, also see the beauty of this truth. For example, this is a theologian. His name's Karl Barth. He is a German theologian in the 1900s. He, notice what he writes. There must be no weakening or obscuring of the saving truth that the nature with God assumed in Christ is identical with our nature as we see it in light of the fall. This is a theologian, but he's saying the same thing. 
that the incarnation, in the incarnation, Jesus had to walk in the humanity that exists in the world when he came into the world. That's the humanity that you and I have. The one exception is he didn't sin. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he never sinned. I don't know about you, but to me that's tremendously good news. That, that God came all the way down to where I am or all the way down to where anybody is in order that he can raise them up. And that there's, that the reach of his, his human arm cannot be eclipsed or separated by any gulf. He came and he embraced humanity. Um, the quotation um, goes on to say, he knows by, this is not Karl Barth, this is Ellen White writing, he knows by experience what are the weaknesses of humanity, what are our wants, and where lies the strength of our temptations. For, because, he was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. You know, in life you have different, different levels of temptations. Um, you know, little children have different kind of temptations. Teenage boys and girls have different levels of temptations. Early 20s, by the time you get old, you know, you have righteousness by senility. Where um, I'm not there, by the way, but... But in every phase in our human experience, Jesus is able to help us. Goes on to say, are you tempted? He will deliver. Are you weak? He will strengthen. Are you ignorant? He will enlighten. Are you wounded? He will heal. He came close to each one of us. He was made like his brethren in all points. So if we think of the question, what kind of humanity did he assume? He assumed a humanity like ours. He had the same equipment that you and I have, yet he never sinned. And because of that, he is able to help those who are tempted. So my phone decided to lock up one more time. Thank you. So what's the purpose for the incarnation? couple of Bible verses. We won't look at all of these. Again, in our text that we're looking at for our scripture reading, one of the main purposes of the, the incarnation is that he could be a merciful, faithful high priest, that he could be our intercessor in the sanctuary in heaven, that he can make propitiation. That's a large, fancy word, which means uh, kind of like an atoning sacrifice, that he could, he could bring forgiveness to us. He could show us what God is really like in the incarnation. Luke 19.10, Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The purpose of the incarnation is a broad topic. He came to save us. He came to be our high priest. He came to rescue us. He came to reveal God, not just to humanity, but to the entire universe. Notice this passage, Colossians chapter 1, start in verse 19. Colossians 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, dwell in Christ. Verse 20. And through him, that's through Christ, 
to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or, what else? Things in heaven. Through Christ, to reconcile the entire universe back to himself. Call that the culmination of the great controversy, where their war began in heaven, as we've been studying in Sabbath school. And that war erupted over who God is, what God's character is like. Is God selfless? Is God selfish? The accusations there, can God's law be kept? Is it impossible to keep God's law? And in the incarnation, Christ reconciles the entire universe because he demonstrates who God is. He demonstrates that God is a God of love. He demonstrates that God's law can be kept in humanity as long as humanity is fully dependent upon God. And that's what we see taking place as one aspect of the incarnation. Next slide, please. Book Education, page 73. In him was found the perfect ideal. He is the only perfect one. To reveal this idea as the only true standard for attainment, to show what every human might become, through the indwelling of humanity by divinity. For this, Christ came to the world. Why did he come? He wants to make you like him. This is part of God's plan. This is part of God's call. This is part of your privilege of being a child of God. That the way he interacted with people, you could interact with people. And the terrible shame is, is that we begin to think about this and we think about overcoming or we think about a last generation, we focus so much on, on, on other external things and not on character. But the point we need to be focusing on is character. That Christ was the great magnet for humanity. Like who liked to be in his presence? You know, little children love to come into his presence. Who else? Who did he eat with and got in trouble with? You know, sinners, publicans, tax collectors, you know, all those lower class people, whoever that might mean in this context. Whoever is outside the circle, those are the ones he tried to pull in. And that is what God's longing to see in your life and mine. That through the indwelling of humanity by divinity, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that you and I could also show how God looks and how God interacts with other people. So our next last question, again, is how long does God remain man? A couple of texts. Um, Just put those two texts up on the screen for me. Thank you. Hebrews 7.24 and then Revelation 14.14. Let's look back in Hebrews 7. 24. <clears throat> Hebrews 7, 24. Again, speaking about the priesthood of Jesus, Paul tells us here, let's read verse 23 through 25 to get the setting and the context. Paul talks about the earthly priests, and he says in verse 23 that the former priests on one hand existed in great numbers, Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing. Very clear that the priests, they would pass away. Aaron passed away and all the other priests, they passed away. But, verse 24, but Jesus, 
on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood, how long? Permanently, forever. He became a man, Hebrews 2, so that he can become a priest, and he holds that priesthood, according to this text, how long? Forever. Revelation 14, 14 is a picture of Jesus coming again, and it calls him there, one like the Son of Man sitting on the clouds. So when Jesus comes back, he still has his human form. How long does God remain man? Next slide, please. Notice these two quotations from the book Desire of Ages. To assure you and me of his immutable counsel of peace. What a word, immutable. What does that word mean, immutable? Evan, what does immutable mean? Unchangeable. Ha, you should go to Fountainview. Unchangeable is to assure us of his unchangeable counsel of peace. God gave his only begotten son to become one with the human family. How long? Forever to retain his human nature. Now, you and I read that and we think, yeah, I knew that. But we don't understand that at all. What are we talking about here? A change in the dynamic of the Godhead in which the God-man continues as the God-man for how long? Forever. Why? So that you can have assurance that God is faithful to his word. If you're ever struggling with doubt, darkness is kind of surrounding and questions and what's happening, just think of the incarnation. That God stepped into humanity, became one with you and with me. And he bears that forever so that you and I can have confidence that his promises are sure. This is the pledge that he will fulfill his word. And you know something? You can't change it. No matter what you do, you can't change the incarnation. He, he did it. And he did it so that you will know that he will always fulfill his word. Next slide, please. In Christ, the family of earth and the family of heaven are bound together. Christ glorified is our brother. Heaven is enshrined in humanity, and humanity is enfolded in the bosom of infinite love. What a beautiful thought. The humanity of Christ is everything to us. It's important that we approach the topic reverently but it is full of encouragement to us. Are you tempted? So was he. Are you faced with trials and difficulties? He was far more. And whatever circumstance you're facing, he is able to help you. He is a merciful and faithful high priest. 24 hours of every day, he's interceding for you and for me. When we begin to question his goodness and question his love, we can just think of the Incarnation that this is the token that God's word is true. Next slide, please. Um, Thinking about this uh, and in relation to kind of our situation in politics happening today, you know there's this beautiful Statue of Liberty. How many of you have ever been to the Statue of Liberty? Really amazing statue built in the 1800s, a gift from France to the United States. And then there's this poem that was written um, by Emma Lazarus. She was a Jewish poetess. And she wrote the poem in order to help raise funds 
to construct the Statue of Liberty on Ellis Island. It was a gift from France. They built it. They sent it over. But we had to figure a way to pay for it to construct it. Um, and so there was fundraising that took place. And so she wrote this poem as kind of a fundraiser. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses, yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Next slide. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. That image, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. The lamp, obviously the torch on the Statue of Liberty, the golden door being a land of opportunity, being the United States. But I can tell you, friends, that no matter how much opportunity there is in the United States, it does not reach the level of invitation that Jesus wants to give. But this call here, send me your homeless, your tempest-tossed, send them to me, send me the downtrodden, send me all these people. This is this open invitation. Come here. But really the call, I'd like to move the call to Jesus' invitation to us. Next slide, please. Where Jesus tells us he's really the light of the world. He's the lamp and the golden door of opportunity. He's not just living in the United States. The golden door of opportunity is to be with God forever in eternity. And Jesus walked into this world to open that door for every single person. And the last generation, the final generation, are going to reflect that invitation to everyone. They are going to be completely inclusive because they realize that Jesus entered into humanity not just one, it's true, he became a Jew in, in Judea 2,000 years ago. He came into a certain historical time. But the purpose of becoming a human was to reach the entire human race. And the last generation, the final generation, is going to catch that love, that, that desire, that longing for people to be saved. And it's going to reflect out of every aspect of their life. They're not going to be building walls, they're going to be tearing walls down. They're going to be looking for ways that they could reflect the character of God to others. Do you want to be part of that final generation? I do. A group of people that are going to rather die than commit sin, a group of people that are living to God's glory, a group of people that want to contribute to the vindication that Christ did at the cross, a group of people that have a message for the world. Next slide, please. Those who wait for the bridegroom's coming are to say to the people, Behold your God the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is what? It's a revelation of his character of love. The last generation are going to be so amazing because they know how to love people. I want that. I want that to transcend my circle. I want that to broaden to the people that I don't naturally love. What about you? You know, he's calling you. You may feel unworthy of that love, but he's calling you to be inside that circle. And when you're in that circle, he wants you to be a voice to call others in as well. Want to be part of that group of people, my friends? That would say to the world, behold your God. This is what he's really like. Full of compassion, full of mercy, full of grace, full of righteousness, full of justice calling us into a full, balanced understanding of God's care for us. The children of God 
are to manifest his glory. That's God's call for us. We leave our church service. We go out into the mission field all around us. Remember that God's call to you is to manifest God's glory, character of love. Think about that the next time you're about to get irritated. That he's calling you to reflect his character of love. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Thank you.